Last year I did a conference with David Wagner in uh, Sydney. And um, <clears throat> it, was, it was a really extraordinary time. David, how many people here know who David Wagner is? Okay, only a couple. He's only one of the most well-known international prophets in the world. He's amazing. Um, so he does a lot of work with Heidi and Roland Baker, and he kind of runs with Randy Clark and that crowd. Um, and I'm going to puff his ministry. Um, it's called Touching the Father's Heart Ministries. And uh, anyway, David and I were asked to do this conference together in Sydney, and it was, it was an amazing conference, I'll just say that. Um, but <clears throat> I, I almost hesitate to tell this story because I, I don't want to appear to be, um, I don't know, uh, self-promoting or doing something that would somehow dishonor the Lord. But anyway, I got up at one of the sessions and we were in a large auditorium and it was, there was a lot of people there. And I had 15 prophetic words written down that had come to me, and I was ready to give them. And so I started into it, and the first word was a direct hit. So I look good, right? God has a way of humbling us. <laughs> I give the second word, it was over here, direct hit. And there was a lot of detail wrapped into those words. And um, so I guess the details were right also. <clears throat> anyway, um, I give the third word and nobody responds. And so I kind of wobbled, but I thought, well, eh, who knows? Everybody misses it sometime. We know in part, we prophesy in part. So I gave the fourth word, nobody responded. And so I said, well, I guess I'm off here, so I'm just going to stop. And I put the list away, and I never gave words 5 through 15. Well, after the, you know, teaching had ended and ministry time was going on, persons three and four walked up to me and said, oh, yeah, I'm the person, and everything you said was right, but, and then they gave their reason. And I said, well, you know, when you did that, actually, I shut off because, you know, you, you draw on me, but I draw on you. We are a body. And so I never gave those other words. I don't know what would have happened if I had, but anyway, um, and it was, it was a, you know, I mean, I got over it, but it was an interesting time for me personally. And so um, sometimes, believe it or not, you know, when you stand up and you give words, it can be a little bit intimidating as the person giving the words. And especially if there's a lot of detail in it, because it's really clearly right or wrong. And of course, if, you, if no one responds, then you look like an idiot. <laughs> and I don't like looking like an idiot. So I got four words tonight while we were worshiping. And I've been sort of vying with the Lord of whether I'm going to give these words or not. <laughs> um, well, so I tell you the story about Sydney because if, if, I, if I launch into this and you get the word is for you, please do not sit there and say, I'm going to go talk to Ken afterward. Because what will happen is I will shut off, not in anger. I just, my faith will collapse and, and 
we prophesy by faith. Paul says, let him who prophesy, prophesy according to the measure of faith, and my faith will go, and after that, I'll be done. So, you know, we're talking about the voice of God, and I'm trying to be faithful to, you know, what I'm getting, but sometimes the way these things come are, they're a little bit gentle. Remember what I said about volume and clarity? Well, sometimes the volume's down here and the clarity's not so great. It doesn't mean it's not a word from God. It just means the volume is low and the clarity's low. So if, if it's a word that comes that way and no one responds, what do you do? I must be off. Forget it. <laughs> Throw it aside. Now, I'm letting you inside the, you know, the skunk works up here in my head because <clears throat> part of what we're trying to do is equip and enable, and, and I want you to understand how it really works, you know, when we're doing this. So I got the number 7234. Does that mean anything to anyone? Could that be somebody's, maybe their PIN number? Seven, two, three, four. The other way I thought about it was I thought seven, two, three, four could be July the 23rd. Remember, I'm an American, so we put the month before the date. Um, so it could be uh, July 23rd could be an important date to you, possibly a birthday or an anniversary. And maybe you were born in a year ending in four. Does that match anybody? Okay. <laughs> No. All right. Well, I'm surprised, but okay. Um, so let's let that one go. The other thing, when we were worshiping, I heard a, a voice. I, often when I get these, they come here on my left side, rarely on my right. I don't know why, but that's just the way it works for me. <clears throat> but I heard, it wasn't audible, but it might as well have been, where are the coins? And that's a strange phrase. Um <clears throat> So as I pondered that word, you know, there's phases of, of getting revelation and unpacking words from God. There's revelation followed by interpretation. It's one thing just to get the revelation. Then you've got to figure out, what do I do with this revelation that I got? And then uh, following that, you have to figure out how to apply the word. What do I do with it, assuming you interpreted it correctly? And by the way, I'm telling you stuff that I'm not going to be teaching on, so I'm not teaching on it. Just kind of sneaking it in there, but... Uh, the thing that happens with these words is the revelation, interpretation, the application, at any point things can go off the rails. And this is why sometimes prophecy seems to go squirrely. And part of what we have to do in our learning to, to hear God, the voice of God, and to deliver words accurately is to get all of those stages correct. And that takes some discipline and, and repetition. And after a while, you learn when you're on and when you're not. And I don't think there's a formula for it. I mean, I can give some guidelines to it, but there's no formula. But anyway, I heard the, this phrase, where are the coins? And I had the sense that maybe someone was looking for possibly some lost coins, like the parable of the woman seeking the lost coin. And I'm, I'm aware, now this is moving from revelation to interpretation, that in Australia, you guys really despise your coinage. You call it shrapnel as though it has no value. But, you know, usually at the end of every trip, between donations and whatnot, I've got 50 to $100 Aussie in shrapnel. Is that worthless? No. Collectively, it's worth something. Um, so I had the sense that someone may have lost some coins, and it's been possibly on your mind you've been looking, and I think you're sitting right back in here somewhere. 
Is, is that right or am I completely off the mark with this? Where are the coins? You're collecting coins. Well, that fits pretty closely. How old is this daughter turning? 13. And how's she going, I mean, overall? Is she struggling or is she, is she pretty solid and whole? Putting up a brave front. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so this this fits very much. See, we know in part, we prophesy in part. I didn't quite understand the word. I just give what I got. And that's one of the keys to doing this. You give what you get. So I heard, where are the coins? Well, I guess you're looking for your 2005. And the word I got was um, shrapnel to wholeness. And uh, God is going to consolidate the pieces. Now, this is a young woman at age 13. I mean, the teenage years are hard enough anyway. But if her, if her family's breaking up, she probably feels like she's been hit with shrapnel and the Lord wants her to know she's going to come to wholeness. He's overseeing this situation. And he wants to consolidate the pieces. Do you know how shrapnel is formed? A shell explodes on a battlefield. And initially it was all one integrated piece and it, right? So consolidating the pieces, you know, I, I want to see you get your 2005 $2 coin. But I, I also bring the word to her that the Lord is watching out for her and he's going to bring wholeness to her in the midst of this battlefield that she's on. See how that works? Yeah. So, okay, there you go. Anyone have a 2005 $2 coin? Oh, he just got it. There you go. <laughs> okay, I'm back on 7234. Does anybody want to go in that one yet? No? Ah, so I may have gotten the order wrong, but they make up your birthday and month and year. You want to tell us what, how that works, what that is? No, okay. <laughs> well, at least I don't look like a false prophet. That's pretty good. All right, good. Good to know. All right. Um, one more here. Um, you know, one of the things when I get names, this is me. Some people do better than I do. I'm trying to get better, but, you know, you have to practice at this stuff, too. And I'll talk about that tonight in the teaching. And maybe it's, well, never mind that. Um, the Hebrew language, every word has only three consonants in it. And the words change based on the vowels they insert. But every word only has three consonants in it. And for whatever reason, when I get words that have names in them, 
often the vowels are fuzzy, but the consonants are more clear. So I, I sit there and I go, come on, God, I, I, really, I really want the vowels. Because I sometimes get the names just a little bit off because of the vowel issue. But I got JSS, and I assumed that was Joss, which is out here usually a woman's name. But it might be Jess, or maybe even Jesse or Jossie. Is there a Joss, Jess, Jesse, Jossie? No? Could be your middle name. What's that? There was here last night. Yeah. Well, that'll teach her not to show up. Hmm. All right, well, maybe, is she going to be here tomorrow? Is she likely to come? All right, so maybe I'll hold that one for her. And then the other word name I got, I think I got this one right. I think it's Jeremy. But it, it could be some other J-E-R, like a Jerry or a Jerome or something. Is there a J Jerry or a Jerome? J J-R was the two. <laughs> Who shot J-R? Um, was the two consonants that I very clearly got, and I, I'm pretty sure it had an M in it. Jeremy? Jer Jerome? No? No one back here? No? Okay, I am a false prophet. You have a nephew named Joshua. How old is he? Four. Um, the word probably doesn't fit a four-year-old. I mean, he, depending on his life, I mean, a part of it might. I'll just say that whoever this person is, um, the Lord wants to speak a word of hope over them because their, their hope has declined. And they feel as though they're options are closing down. That's why I'm not sure. A four-year-old usually would. But, you know, a four-year-old in a divorce could feel that way. Kids at that age are aware enough. But um, anyway, like their options are closing down. The walls are closing in. And the Lord says there's a season of opening coming and what seemed to be closing is about to become life. So you have a Joshua. How old is your Joshua? Well, it might fit him, I don't know. Or it's this one that Kirk's talking about. I'm not sure. Like I say, the Lord has his way of keeping us humble. All right, well, I'll stop with that, lest I undermine everything I'm teaching you and you think I don't know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Thanks for playing along, though. It's, it was better than in Sydney where people stonewalled me. <laughs> it was actually a very alive room. People just One thing I've noticed, people get sometimes freaked out or afraid. And other times they don't know what to do. Sean Boltz called me out in a crowd about two months ago, and I actually wasn't sure that it was for me. He had the right date. He called my birth date out. And no one else in the room responded. And that was when I kind of went, hey, maybe this is for me. But the other parts of the word, I actually didn't realize that he had them correct because it involved my parents' anniversary date. And my father died when I was four. And my parents' anniversary has never been on my radar for anything. So as I thought about it, I went, well, you know, that could be right, maybe. So I have people around me, and they're all going, put up your hand, it's for you, it's for you, it's for you. So I stand up, he gives me this word. Then I go home, and I pull my parents' marriage license out of the safe. I haven't looked at this license in, who knows, 20, 30 years? He had the date right on the money. And it was like, whoa. So I didn't even know 
that the word was right. And as a result, I didn't respond as I should have the moment he threw it out there. So there's all kinds of these things that can go wild with prophesying. And I tell you that, and I also am willing to be vulnerable in front of you because I hope it helps you in your own journey in this to see that, you know, even the guy in front of the room, it isn't always crystal clear and what to do with that. Does that make sense? All right, let's get going on how to hear God's voice. So we're going to 2 Kings chapter 3. <clears throat> I still want to know your birth date. I'm going to talk to you afterward. <laughs> Yo. That's interesting. Well, let me tell another story then, just before we get teaching. Because sometimes these words, it's crazy. I, I, I'm writing my doctoral dissertation on prophetic ministry as catalyst for awakening. So I have not only a personal interest in it in terms of practical ministry, I'm trying to do something academic that no one's ever done before. And I'm like, I feel like the hosts of hell are arrayed against me every single time I turn around, something else goes wrong and I fall further behind. But I was looking, I was watching this um, video of a, of a well-known prophet and he calls out this word and I can't remember the name, but he gives this word and the, there's these people right down here in the very front and they're waving their hands because the word exactly fit and he doesn't see him because of the lights and he's looking for where's the person and up the back, there's somebody who responds to the word. And every single piece of the word fit them, too. Crazy thing, it was in a line. Boom, boom. So the revelation matched in both cases, but the interpretation was different. And the word was right in both cases, even though totally different families, totally different context. God can do that. So I look at you and I look at you and I think, well, it's entirely possible. And I think when I called that one out, I didn't actually write down where it was, the other one I did. But I think I pointed back here, you would be in line with where I pointed. That doesn't mean you don't fit, it just means, yeah. So the unlocking, and I know a little bit about your own history. I don't need to do anything with that, but maybe God's about to unlock what's been locked up. And if you're only three quarters of the way through your life, you, you take a third of take a third of however long you've lived, and add that, and think, okay, I better keep myself in shape and eat well and sleep well because I got a long journey yet ahead of me. Does that make sense? But look for the unlocking to come. Maybe this is the thing with John Kirk and I were talking about it last night. Yeah. Okay. All right. Two Kings three. How to hear God's voice. So, <clears throat> Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Now, this is a story that's occurring in the context of the kingdom of Moab rebelling against uh, subjugation to the kingdom of Israel. And remember, at this time in Israel's history, there are two kingdoms that we might call Israel. There's the one called Israel, and there's the southern kingdom that is generally called Judah. They're all Israelites. But Judah was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and the other ten tribes are in this northern kingdom of Israel. And so there's this revolt, and they're getting ready to 
go out to war. And they want to know from God what's going to happen. So Elisha says to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab because they're afraid they're going to lose. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. Well, that's a good way to make friends with the king. It means about now what it meant then. But now bring me a minstrel. And when the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. So was Elisha walking in continuous revelation? No. As the minstrel played, the hand of the Lord came and revelation began to flow. We'll talk more about that. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. Now this is relevant, and we didn't read the context, but this is relevant because they've been out marching around in the desert looking to make contact with the enemy, and they're out of water, and they think they're going to die of thirst. The Lord says, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. Presumably they're parked, you know, they've, they've camped out along a, a riverbed that no water's running. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. And you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. And the next morning about the time of the offering of the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was full of water. Well, that's a one-zero prophecy. It's either right or it's not. And in this case, it was. Now, it is Elisha. He's one of the heavy hitters of the Old Testament. How do we hear the voice of God? Well, first, let's start with the basics. A lot of people struggle with just getting any revelation. Forget about the interpretation, the application. So the first basic is we have to submit to the Lordship of Christ. Now, you may be saying, come on, Ken, that's, that's Christianity 101. Actually, it, it is Christianity 101, and most people fail that course. I mean, I run into this all the time where I travel. People tell me, well, you know, I thought the Lord told me to do thus and so, so I did something else. And I'm like, well, why did you do that? Well, I wasn't sure it was God. Wouldn't you rather try to obey what you think is God than to go in some other direction just because it's scary or doesn't fit your grid, your you know preconceived notions about what is and isn't? And if I dare say it, I love you, Australia. This is my 94th trip to Australia. I'm in deep with you guys. I believe in your prophetic destiny, and I believe what God's going to do in this nation. But Aussies have a problem submitting to the lordship of Christ. There's a lot of rebellion in this country. And it, it, it re it's reflected in the way you interact with your government. But it's ultimately about him. And some of it's coming out of your own fatherlessness as a people and the, the I mean... I think your families are among the most dysfunctional and violent of anywhere in the, in the earth, literally. You have all these smiling faces and all your adverts on TV that show, you know, the, where there was one on TV today of a pregnant woman and her husband. I guess it was her husband. Presumably it was her husband. <laughs> and they're decorating the nursery, and it was some home remodeling thing. And, but I know because I pray for a lot of people in your country that 
There is an enormous amount of violence and sexual abuse and drunkenness and verbal abuse and mocking and just brokenness that is present in your land. So submitting to the Lordship of Christ might actually touch on a whole bunch of issues in your own personal earthly existence of what you do in family, what you do with government, what you do with your boss, all of that. But submit to the Lordship of Christ because here's the thing, the promises of guidance and of hearing his voice that I mentioned last night, my sheep hear my voice, well, those are for sheep, not for goats. So if you're a goat, good luck. <laughs> Time to become a sheep. And with it, this corollary, it is impossible to obey God by disobeying God. Now, I run into this one all over. Here's, here's a common one. I don't want to get down a rabbit trail here, but... Everywhere I go in Australia, people are, you know, asking about yoga these days. No, you can't do yoga. Not, not if you're going to be safe as a Christian. Why? Because yoga is Hinduism, and all those postures are prayer postures. When you do yoga, you are praying to Hindu gods, whether or not you are using words. Now, people say, but I'm doing Christian yoga. It doesn't exist. It's like saying a Jew eating pork. It doesn't work. So people say, well, you know, I think it's a good idea. It's very good for my health, so I'm going to do it anyway. Well, have it your way, but you can't obey God by disobeying God. If you're going to obey God, obey God. If the Lord be God, follow him. So, again, I don't want to dwell on that point, but just submit to the lordship of Christ. There are things God has shown you in the word. You've heard from a sermon. Presumably you go to a good church where they preach the word. Maybe you've, you know, had a dream or something. And... You did something different. I, I was with a woman. Um, no, well, that sounds bad. I was talking with a woman <laughs> uh, in, where was I? In uh, Melbourne, uh, just about a week ago. And the Lord spoke to her in a dream and said, do not bring your mother from Adelaide to Melbourne, even though her mother was aging. It was a clear word from God. And she knew the Lord had spoken to her in a dream. So you know what she did? She got up the next day, and she talked to a neighbor, and she said, oh, you know how to work with computers and go online. Would you buy a plane ticket for my mom so she can come to Melbourne? And so the woman flies over to Melbourne, and now the mother is there in Melbourne with her. And she said, I'm having all these problems with my mother. I said, your problem is you disobeyed the Lord. You sinned. So what do you mean? Don't, don't say that. People will hear you say that. They'll think I'm into something bad. I said, well, number one, you're more worried about your reputation than obedience. And number two, God told you, do not bring your mother to Melbourne. So you didn't bring your mother to Melbourne. You put someone up to it, but you disobeyed the clear word of the Lord. And now you got this mess on your hands. I don't know what to tell you. People do this all the time. So number one, submit to the Lordship of Christ, which means obey the last thing you heard. Really simply. A lot of times people say, you know, the flow of revelation doesn't come to me. And I say, well, did you obey the last revelation you got? Well, you know, it was a little scary and hard and I wasn't sure what to do, so I blew it off. Awesome. Sometimes God calls you to do things that are challenging. And that's, that's his prerogative. He's God. All right, number two, resist the devil. Now... <clears throat> The book of James, chapter 4, verse 7 says, resist the devil and, and you, he will flee from you. Now, there's a lot of people who fear the devil. And I think we need to be healthily respectful of the devil. He is powerful. He's quite deceptive. And a lot of times people get tangled up with that. They're challenging principalities or whatever. But we shouldn't be walking around in fear. And a lot of times 
when I talk with believers, they're like, well, you know, the devil may get me, and I don't want to do this, and I don't want to do that. And I'm like, you know what? I don't spend my days worrying about the devil. I put my armor on in the morning, and I go out on the battlefield, and I assume that because I live in the shadow of the Almighty, he will protect me from the arrow that flies by day and the terror that stalks by night. And if I happen to run up against a challenge, I assume that he will give his angels charge over me. I'm still quoting from Psalm 91. And I'll, in the end, be okay. So if you have this overwhelming fear of the devil, that will, that will cripple your ability to hear God. And with it is this idea. A lot of times people say, well, how do I know if I try to hear from God that it isn't the devil speaking? Well, it could be the devil if you have open doors. But, but for the most part, if, if you are a sheep, you should assume that when you approach the Lord, the Lord's approaching you. Number three, expect an answer. So we've mentioned this. My sheep hear my voice, but um, let's, just, let's just read a couple of verses here because it's so illuminating to do it. To, the, uh, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voices of strangers. Again, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So take the words of Jesus to heart. And Psalm 40, verse 1 says, I waited for the Lord on high. I waited, and he heard my cry. So in expecting an answer, Wait on the Lord and expect that he will answer you, even if the answer comes slowly. The Lord spoke to Habakkuk, who was one of the prophets of the Bible, three chapters long. He's slightly longer than Haggai, but he's almost as accessible because he's only three chapters. And the Lord said to Haggai, he showed him this, or Habakkuk, he showed him this amazing revelation. And he says, though the vision wait, or linger, tarry, wait for it. So what does that mean? Well, sometimes when God is going to speak, you might actually need to wait upon him. I mentioned this last night with Jeremiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7. The elders of Israel come to him. The city is under siege. It's on the verge of capitulating to the Babylonian army. Is this a high-pressure, high-risk situation? You better believe it. And they come to Jeremiah and they say, do you have a word from the Lord? He goes, no, I don't, but let me go ask. And while, you know, there's war and battle going on and the catapults are launching, you know, rocks and missiles at the city and there's flaming arrows and there's famine and literally people are eating their dead in the city for food. This is how bad it is. Ten days later, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is one of the heavy prophets of the Old Testament. We call him one of the major prophets. So wait on the Lord for an answer, even if it seems slow. Now, with that is implied something that I'm going to revisit. Don't just prophesy out of your own imagination. And a lot of times people do. Sometimes people prophesy evil because their hearts are corrupted to some degree or they're filled with unforgiveness and bitterness. Other times they prophesy good, and it's actually not a word the Lord gave. Where do you commonly see this? Prophesying babies, prophesying marriage. You know, somebody really, really wants to get married or wants to get pregnant, and you want them to be happy. You want them to have these experiences of life too, and so your soul wants to go there with them. Don't allow that to happen. 
You have to, you have to prophesy what God gives, not what you generate out of your goodwill and intention for your friends. And that's as dangerous as when you have ill will or unforgiveness or bitterness. And it's probably more common. Hello? Now, what does that look like? Well, I'll use my own life as an example. It's usually dangerous to do that, but it's a really good one. You know, my daughter Carissa is handicapped. And I actually do really believe she's going to be healed. I, I believe we're you know, going to find the breakthrough and she's going to be fine in the end. But she's Sarah Delaney's age and she doesn't behave like Sarah Delaney. Let's just leave it at that. And I've had, you know, 9,342 words from people saying, you know, Carissa will rise up and she will become the great prophetess of the earth. You know, the arch prophet of the six continents. And, you know, she's going to, she's going to, you know, break down doors and she's going to free all these other kids that have these same problems. And I'm like, mm, maybe. Will it happen? I don't know. I think she'll be healed. I don't know if she'll have this grand and glorious ministry. I'm not saying she couldn't, and I don't want to be filled with unbelief. So when people give me those words, I generally just say thank you. And there isn't literally 9,000, whatever I said. But, <clears throat> but it's like everybody and their dog feels, uh, feels compelled, the necessity of giving this word about this incredible thing that's going to happen with Carissa. We've received three words that I think are true and valid words from God. And I have my reasons why I think they're true and valid. And that's enough. That's part of why I think she's going to be healed. I also see at discrete moments where God has touched her and we move along the curve towards normalcy. So I look at that and I go, well, he who began a good work, in, my, in this case my daughter, not me, will in fact bring it to completion right up to the day of Christ Jesus. So I believe it's coming. But the other 9,340, whatever it was, you know, I, I just go, well, I don't know. I guess we'll see when all that stuff plays out. So beware, beware of speaking out of your own soul. By the way, Jeremiah spoke into this during the siege of Jerusalem. There were other prophets in Jerusalem, and he said, those prophets prophesy out of their vain imaginations. Now, the imagination is the future of the mind, which is one-seventh of the soul. There's seven parts. One-seventh of the soul. So what are they doing? They're conceiving of something that is wishful thinking. And Jeremiah says they prophesy, but it isn't real prophecy. That's a hard word to bring too, isn't it? It's really quiet in here. I will revisit this concept, but anyway. Allow God to speak to you as he chooses without dictating how he speaks to you. Now, I was trying to open everyone up last night to some of the many ways God can speak. And as I was also suggesting, focus maybe on things that you haven't been accustomed to hearing him through, because I think there is value in allowing that, uh, that, that set of ways that God speaks to become richer and more full and hear the voice of God in all of that. Here's another principle, have a yielded heart. So um, Kirk was reading out of this in the story of Samuel, we see in that, if I can get there quickly enough, we see in that account, 1 Samuel 3, 8 and following, and the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli, here I am, for you called me. And Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Note that he didn't perceive until this third time. Because Eli was himself a corrupted man. He was, a, he was the high priest 
but due to a number of factors that were going on, he had himself lost the ability to hear God. And so it took these three summons from the Lord to Samuel for Eli ultimately to perceive. And he, he said to him, uh, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And this, this time, when God speaks, he does. What does a yielded heart mean? I'm willing to hear anything you have to say, whether I like it or not. And not only do I have a willingness to hear it, I have a willingness to do it. Because as I said, in the Hebrew word of hear, there's no room for hear and not obey. Be in the word consistently because it will guide you. And in fact, good revelation will always track to consistency with the word of God. I'm, I'm very concerned with the things I see going on in the modern prophetic movement, that there are people prophesying stuff that is totally off the beam with respect to scripture. And I'm not talking about gray areas. I'm talking about black and white. <clears throat> and people are sucking it down like it's the real thing because they have no discernment because they don't know the word of God. And the true prophets of the Lord in the Bible, they were men of the word. So being in the word isn't going to like dilute your prophetic gift and your calling. Trust me. Another one, simple one, confess your known sins because they will cloud your ability to hear God. And I mentioned this last night. So number one, submit to the Lord of Christ, Lordship of Christ. Two, resist the devil without uh, fearing him. Number three, expect an answer. Expect it. Now, why would you expect an answer from God? Well, because I'll just use Kirk and Nicole since they're sitting here. You know, I stay at their home when I come here and I watch how they interact with their kids. And I've watched all three of their kids at different times over many years now say, Dad, Mom. And when they do, they say, yes. That's how it's supposed to be in a good relationship. Now, you may have come out of one of those violent, abusive, dysfunctional, broken homes, but we're trying to restore normalcy and sanity here. So just as Kirk and Nicole say yes, when they hear one of the kids calling, that's the way our father is with us. Now, I'm, what I'm saying is actually very profound, and there are several people here who need to be hearing this. I may actually be speaking prophetically as I say that. So call upon me, and I will answer you and show you great and wondrous things you have not known. This is the word of the Lord that was given to Jeremiah. So call upon him and expect. Okay, next, uh, get your own leading, but expect confirmation from others. So as you hear words from God, you can take them and say, I'm pretty sure I heard God on this, but just know your father is so eager that you would be confident that almost inevitably he will confirm the very things that you think you've heard along the way, and that becomes exactly that, confirmation. Now, you don't need 242 confirmations. It's enough to get one or two, and you go, yeah, I'm hearing God. But that happens because you're settled down on him. Uh, next, don't discuss the guidance you received until it's time. And this principle is called keeping secrets with God. One of the principles for hearing from God is not to be a prophetic blabbermouth. Now, Amos 3, 7 and 8 says, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing, nothing, nothing 
without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Nothing. But the fact that he revealed it doesn't mean that you should be saying it, at least not yet. I was with Eric Metaxas. You might know who he is or not, but he's a friend of mine, famous um, media personality in the U.S., and one of the more popular uh, Christian speakers and whatnot. He's written, I don't know, a bunch of books. I don't even know how many. A very bright guy. I was at his house um, late last year, and we were having dinner, and he was just about to publish his new book, and he said, he looks at me, and so he's sitting across the table from me diagonally. We have another friend here, and his wife is here. So it's the four of us having dinner. And he says, do you have a word for me from the Lord? And I, I stopped, and the Lord said, now. And I said, okay, yeah, I do have a word for you. And I give him this word. And he goes, that's an amazing word. And it had to do with, um, not unlike this, the picture in Zechariah, the oil pouring out of the lampstands and what was going to come. And I told him about people that were going to come behind him because of this book he was about to release. He goes, that's an amazing word. He goes, how long have you had that word? And I said, oh, about a year. He says, a year? Why didn't you give it to me sooner? I said, it wasn't time. And he couldn't get his head wrapped around that because he doesn't really function prophetically, but he's also never had anyone tell him about this. So when you get these things, don't discuss it until it's time. And sometimes that time will be never. Other times it'll be later, but not now. So you have to learn to keep secrets with God. Why? Well, if you tell someone a secret and they tell your secret, what do you do? You don't tell them any more secrets. You want to know how to shut down prophetic revelation? Speak things out of season. Ooh, no one ever told me that. What are some of the pitfalls that come? Well, number one, pride. You know, God spoke to me, but he didn't speak to you. Sometimes it may be, you know, God spoke to me instead of to someone else. This is akin to name dropping. You know, me and God, we're mates. So that's a problem. There's also presumption because you may speak before the full understanding has come. There will be times God will give you a tidbit of revelation, and as you noodle on it a bit, which means pray into it, meditate on it, wait on it, that revelation will open up. It'll be like a flower in bud that then becomes a full flower. Would you really want to give a bud, or would you rather give the full flower that looks beautiful? We don't want to release words out of season or deliver them in the wrong context. Some words are meant to be given privately. Other words are meant to be given publicly. And so you need to learn to discriminate between the two. And I don't mean discriminate in a bad sense. Other times, there will be heart preparation for the hearers. People may not yet be ready to receive that word. And if you give the word too soon, here is a really important principle of the spirit world. Truth that is received but not acted upon, meaning it is heard but it doesn't sink into the heart, it hardens the heart. And so if you give someone a word, a true prophetic word, and it's too soon, and they aren't ready to receive it, sometimes they are ready and you're just out of season, but if they aren't actually ready to receive that word, it will close their heart, it will harden their heart, and that can actually lead to disobedience and wickedness. And if you study the prophets, you will see examples of this. One of the most famous is Ahab. Remember him? He was married to a woman named Jezebel. 
It did not go well. Okay, here's another one. Use the three wise men principle. Three wise men followed a star. Well, actually, we don't know if there were really three. They're just called the Magi, but by tradition, it's three wise men. Three wise men followed a star, and all of them found the same Jesus. Now, we're not actually taking polls, but with that, the Lord does not mind our testing what he gives us. Lord, would you please reconfirm this to me? And so look for that convergence effect. Um, everyone has a unique calling from God, even husbands and wives, so not all guidance will be identical. Now, obviously, something that impacts the life of one member of a married couple will, by extension, affect the other member, but they may not actually have that revelation, and it may be that the calling is somehow unique to that person. Now, I don't think God seeks to split marriages up, so that would be one of my immediate tests of whether the word is valid. If it's going to divide them, probably not really God. But it may be that God's put a unique thing on one that is not the other, and so he's directing them, and that's okay. Um, next principle, practice hearing God's voice in order to build relationship with him. Now, there's a lot of ways you can do this. There's all kinds of ways you can do this. You could say, Lord, would you give me a sign as I'm driving to work today? And you may see literally a sign by the side of the road that somehow has the voice of God coming through it. Or you may say, Lord, is there, tell me a license plate I'm going to see. And he'll give you ABC, you know, one, two, three. And so you are driving down the road and you're on your way to work and, hey, look at that over there. There's ABC 123. You and God are playing prophetic games. Or you might say, Lord, show me somebody that I'm going to see. And so, you know, you think of Sally there that wherever you're going, it might be the mall. It may not even be your office. You're going shopping. But you know Sally. Maybe you know her from church. And you walk into Woolies and... Here's Sally, and the Lord has said, Sally will be wearing a yellow jumper. And you walk in, and what do you know? Here's Sally in her yellow jumper. He told you you're going to see Sally, and he told you even what she'd be wearing. Now, this kind of thinking is, is in the heart of what Bethel calls treasure hunting, right? Go down to the bridge, look for the guy in the hoodie. You know, it's a purple hoodie that says Gurkha on it. And, you know, boom, off you go. So you can play these prophetic games with God. You go, what if I get it wrong? Every time you fail, you can learn. Because what you see in that is, what I thought I heard isn't really what I heard. And so what I know is when it comes, you know, that way, as opposed to this way, now I'm using hand motions, but there's different ways we hear. Remember what I said, when I hear that voice, for me, it's always, almost always on the left. So if I hear something on the right, I'm, I'm quite skeptical of it unless I get another confirmation of it. Could God speak on my right? Yeah, of course he could. But usually it's the left, so that's the one I'm most familiar with, and that's the one I have the most confidence in. And so if you're getting stuff and it's consistently wrong, then you should consistently disregard it to the point where you say, God, I, I know this isn't you. How do you want to speak to me? Now, sometimes back on my thing of not fearing the devil, I will say this. Sometimes people who have been parts of false religious systems, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. They were actually practicing Hindus or Muslims or Buddhists or Taoists or whatever. If they've not gone through a full and thorough deliverance, those false spirits from those false religious systems can actually create interference and static. 
And so if you have been in those kinds of religious systems, and that's not an exhaustive list, by the way, it's representative. If you've been in that kind of stuff, you might want to consider getting some prayer over your previous religious entanglements so that'll get cleared out and then you'll be able to hear God more clearly. All right, so that's all backstop stuff, background stuff. Let's go back to our passage in uh, dealing with Elisha. So the first principle for hearing God, how we tune into God, is get into the stillness. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. Now, to hear the voice of God, we have to quiet our hearts as a child before its mother. I'm quoting another psalm there. This is a place of rest and of safety, and it necessarily means eliminating distractions and maybe, maybe even noise itself. Now, as you become more familiarized with the prophetic, <laughs> as you become more familiarized with the prophetic, you may find yourself needing to prophesy in situations where your kids are screaming, someone calls on the phone, you got a crying baby, Wah! and someone calls on the phone, you can still get a word from God in the midst of that chaos. Or you're in the mall, or you're down at the festival, or the train's going by blowing its horn. All of that, you could still get a word from God, but you have to find the quiet. Or as John Michael Talbot famously said, he had an album out, I don't know, 40 years ago, called Come to the Quiet. So you need to come to the quiet in the stillness of your heart, in the center of who you are. Many of us do not do well at that. Our lives are constant commotion and chaos. And one of the things we have to do is develop that discipline of turning that off. All that chaos and commotion. Because if you're trying to hear the word of God where there's, where there's chaos in your soul, it's bad enough if it's around you. But if it's in your soul, you will struggle to hear the voice of God. And generally, this stillness principle cannot be rushed. Now, this is why, going back to our evangelical brethren, they emphasize quiet times every day. They don't know it, but they're actually doing a prophetic discipline. And they expect that they will only hear God in the scriptures. Well, you can assuredly hear God in the scriptures. That's not in question. But um, we're talking about expanding into new areas where we hear God. So number one, get silent or get still. Now, what happened in the story of Elisha and this word? He says, bring me a minstrel, and the minstrel begins to play. What is Elisha doing? He's coming into the quiet. He, you know, they, they've got a problem here. We've got three kings with their armies trying to go out to war against Moab. We're out of water. Everything's going to die, and, and we're going to be hosed without even going into battle. So Elisha's like, I can't, be, I can't be knocked off center by all of the commotion of what's going on around me. Bring me a minstrel, and let me just wait on the Lord, and then let that thing just settle on me. The second step in hearing from God is the vision principle, or we could call it the focus principle. Now, Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 and 2, fix your eyes on Jesus, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And for us, we may literally see him if we are highly visionary or attuned to this. It can happen. 
But let's assume you're not one of those people who is going to see Jesus tonight. That's okay. You can still take your spiritual eyes. Paul talks about, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. So fix your spiritual eyes on Jesus. If you need to, it's okay to imagine it because it's sanctified imagination. But fix your eyes on Jesus. I see you up there on the throne, at least as best I can, or what I think is you or would be you. I've got my eyes locked in, and I'm now gazing specifically on you. And about that time, you're going to remember, I got to go to the store and I got to go buy oranges. So what are you going to do? Well, ideally, you have a piece of paper with you. It could be the thing on your phone. But the problem with your phone, and I will be really honest about this, is as soon as you pick up your phone, you'll see all the emails and text messages and Facebook messages and other things that have come in, and you'll want to go check them, and then you'll be over here somewhere, and you will not be doing this discipline. So I am not a fan of doing this with your phone or your tablet. You can try it, but trust me, you'll do better with a piece of paper and a pen. I know it's old-fashioned and analog, but get over it. So you fix your eyes on Jesus, and you zero in on what he's doing up there, and you maintain that focus. And as you do, you allow things to come. Now, how do those things come? Let the Lord, he can do one of two things. He can draw you into something, and you'll feel yourself being pulled. And for me, when it happens, I feel it up here in my chest and occasionally down here. It's about 80% of the time right here, 20% of the time down here. That's my emotional part. And my thoughts, I just feel my, my thoughts being pulled somewhere. This, well, no one responded to it, but this word for Jeremy or whatever his name is, <laughs> Jones, whatever, um, this word came to me this way. So on that one, my, my thinking and my vision was pulled in a particular direction. That's part of why I'm so surprised no one responded, because that way is one of my most reliable ways. But your vision and your focus, so you've fixed your eyes on Jesus, but now that you're fixed on him, he leads me. We could say besides still waters. I'm going to run over a bit tonight. I apologize, but he leads me besides still waters. He leads me. So now that you're fixed on him, he may say, come, I want to show you something. And he pulls your thoughts over here, or he pulls your affections and your emotions over here. And so as that happens, he begins to show you things. Now, here's how it happened for the prophet Amos, who, again, nobody knows who he is. But he was a missionary prophet, a contemporary of Jonah, and he prophesied. He was, he was from the kingdom of Judah, but he was sent north of the line into the kingdom of Israel, and he went ultimately to the... Um, the, the center of worship in the North Kingdom, which was idolatrous and wrong, and he delivered many words from God. But this is how it begins. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, he's a shepherd. He's used to living out in the fields. He's accustomed to, what, hearing the voice of God on the wind with the water running down the creek bed, the quiet. And remember, in those days, it's especially quiet. There's no trains, there's no planes, there's no automobiles, there's no cell phones. But it's in that environment. Who else was a shepherd? David. So 
Something about shepherds. Who got the revelation of angels in the field saying the Christ child had been born? Shepherds. Shepherds practice this quiet discipline pretty readily. And if they are spiritual men, or could be women, they are communing with God while they're doing that. So these are the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. How did Amos get these words? He saw them. They were visionary. So something was happening. Now, did he see like open visions or did he see visions in his mind? It doesn't make clear which one it is. But he sees. But those aren't the only visions Amos has. Here's another word from Amos, chapter 7, verse 1. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And so the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be. Now in this one, Amos foresaw that there would come a plague of locusts that would devour all the food in the land after the king had taken his cut. And the people would starve. And so what does it do? It drives him into intercession. And the Lord says, I'll answer your prayer. But this came because he saw something. How did he see it? Well, he might have seen a vision. He could have had a dream. Or he could have been out in the fields and looked up. And, you know, plagues of locusts are common in the Middle East. You see their cloud coming. And he may have seen the cloud coming. And he just called out to God as he saw these locusts coming toward his pasture. And the Lord took a wind and blew the locusts away. Any or all could be right. It doesn't describe the mechanism. It just says the Lord relented. Verse 7, this is what the Lord showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. He saw the Lord. That's pretty full on. And the Lord has a plumb line, and he's measuring, and he's going, mm, not so good. And so the, the, Lord, or the story goes on. Amos 8.1, I made mention of this one last night. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And the Lord said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. So he's prophesying the end of the north kingdom. Remember what I said about fruit and end. There's a word play there. You wouldn't get it in English, but in Hebrew, it's very clear. So he gets a parable as he sees the fruit. How did he see the fruit? Well, he was a shepherd and a farmer, he might have picked his own harvest and had a, you know, these baskets of fruit ready to go to market, and the Lord drew his attention to one basket. Or he may have been in the market and seen a basket of fruit. But something of that. And then again, 9-1, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said to me, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. He's prophesying about a shakeup of the religious hierarchy. So these are some of the ways that this vision focus thing came to Amos. Now, there are many places else I could show you in Scripture where this happens. But it starts with this business of being focused. So fix your eyes on things above and let the Lord draw you to where he wants to draw you as he shows you. I'm thinking of a friend of mine, he had a situation happen where someone rose up against him and everything that was said was wrong, false, and highly, highly inflammatory. And he went to the Lord 
And the Lord said, what do you imagine could cause a man to be as he is? And so this friend of mine kind of took that, and he was like, meh. But a couple days later, he went up on top of a mountain. This was here in Australia. Well, you call it a mountain. We'd call it a hill. But anyway. So he goes up on a mountain, and he's praying, and he says, Lord, you asked me this question, what could cause a man to be as he is? And while he's up on the mountain, he's praying for this man, and he says, I suppose that this could have happened and this would be in his life and these would be the things that would make him be like that. About a week later, that man marches into his office and says, I want to apologize to you for the things I've been saying and doing to you. Let me tell you my story. And everything that he had prayed a week before proved to be what was in that man's story. Was he only praying or was he praying revelation? What do you think? So the Lord drew him to the very things he needed to be praying into. And apparently, I would say, there was an unlocking of that man's bound-up spirit man that caused all of that difficulty. That There was some sort of breakthrough that came. Why? Because he was listening to the voice of God as he prayed on that mountaintop. The very voice of God that a week before that, he'd kind of like, meh. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, let's keep going. Step three spontaneity or flow. Now we're talking about Amos and we're talking about <clears throat> how he was a contemporary of Jonah. But you know, the book of Jonah, I love the book of Jonah. It's also an accessible book. It's only four chapters long. So, you know, if Haggai's two and Habakkuk is three, Jonah's four. But the book of Jonah begins with one single word, now. And what's interesting about that is most people don't know this, but if you study Jonah carefully, he was court prophet to King Jeroboam number two. There were two Jeroboams in Israel's history, meaning the North Kingdom of Israel. The first Jeroboam was the one who founded the, the North Kingdom when he split away from Solomon's son, Rehoboam. But some years later, there was another Jeroboam, generally called Jeroboam II by um, biblical scholars, and Jonah was a court prophet to Jeroboam II. And it says in the scriptures in uh, the book of Second Kings that as long as Jonah was with Jeroboam and prophesied the word of the Lord to him, Jeroboam heeded the words, even though he was a wicked king, he heeded the words of Jonah and Israel prospered because Jeroboam heeded the words of Jonah. Now, that's kind of crazy. That bends your mind around a little bit. Here's a wicked king, but he's smart enough to listen to the voice of God through this prophet, and everything he does prospers as a result, even though he's a wicked king. And what would we think? Ah, strike him to the ground, judge him, rain fire from heaven. But God is, is determined to bless. He loves, and he wants to do good. Sometimes people do stuff that short-circuit that. I get it. But that's his heart. So Jeroboam is getting a lot out of Jonah, and Jonah's living at large, right? He's living in the palace. Diplomats come. He gets to go to the diplomatic dinners. You know, he's giving the king counsel. He's got nice clothes. He eats all the good food. He's, he's living large. And now the word of the Lord comes. He says, hey, Jonah, I'm turning you into a missionary prophet now. He's like, I don't want to be a missionary. I like where I'm ministering right here, right now. And the Lord goes, no, no, I got something for you. You know all those diplomats that have been coming in from Assyria that are, that are talking about, you know, 
how they're advancing their kingdom and they're trying to make sure that Israel comes under their control because they want to pull the wealth out of Israel, make it a vassal state. That's what's going on in international diplomacy in these days. And Jonah's privy to all that. The Lord says, you know, here's your new assignment, Jonah. I'm going to send you to Nineveh and you're going to prophesy there rather than to the diplomats who come to sit at Jeroboam's table. He's like, I don't like that job. Not a good job, Lord. You know, I got a better idea. I'm going to book passage to Tarshish. You know where Tarshish is? It's the Straits of Gibraltar. It's 2,000 miles away at the other end of the Mediterranean on the coast of Spain. That's where Jonah's headed. The Lord goes, uh, let's rethink this, Jonah. So he sends the, the you know storm. Jonah ends up in the whale. You know the story. He gets vomited out. And now he still has to go to Nineveh because <laughs> this is the way it works with God. He gets to Nineveh, but he's got an attitude, doesn't he? Because we know how the book ends and he's angry with God. I knew you'd be merciful to these scumbags. The Lord says, look, there's 120,000 people in this city and a lot of cattle too. I have mercy on the cattle as well as the people. All right. So now the word of the Lord came. So there's a spontaneity to the way the word of God comes. And oftentimes it will come in ways that, again, you didn't expect or didn't want to hear or maybe not even understand fully. Look at these words I gave tonight. I didn't fully understand the context. We know in part and prophesy in part. You actually need to noodle on them. I didn't have much time to noodle because these came to me, most of them, in worship. So I was just jotting things down. Now the word of the Lord came. So it'll come to you, and it'll come in that moment of revelation. We see it as well with the calling of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is a book that I have looked at for years. My grandmother loved the book of Jeremiah. I've struggled with the book of Jeremiah, but I'm, I'm getting my head wrapped around it now after I don't know how many times I've read it and many years of pondering it. But in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is the son of Hilkiah, the high priest. He's highly born. He is going maybe to be the next high priest, depending on where he stands in the, you know, in the succession of children. And he talks about how the word of the Lord came to him and blah, 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 blah. But it says, Jeremiah 1.4, now the word of the Lord came to me saying. There was something that just flipped. It just switched on. Now the word of the Lord came. Up until then, he's just a priest, but now he's a prophet. Now the word of the Lord came to me. And the word came saying, personal word. This is why I was doing personal words last night. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Well, if you got that word from God, would you stand up here in this shed and say, hey, the Lord just gave me a word for myself. He said, I'm a prophet to the nations, and he knew me before I was born. You'd go, I can't say that because, you know, that would be like self-promotion and full of myself, right? So what would we tend to do? Turn it off. You don't want to turn that thing off. You might not want to blab it out, but you don't want to turn that thing off because that is your prophetic commissioning. But note that it came. It was a, what I call a now word. And I could show you other places in the Bible where this happens, but I think two is enough to make the point. So... Allow the spontaneity. Now, in 
back to our story with Elisha, he had said, bring me a minstrel, and the minstrel begins to play, and then it says, the hand of the Lord came upon him. This is the now word coming. That's just another way of describing it. Now, literally, when we say the hand of the Lord came on someone, there may be a sensation of weight settling on the head, on the shoulder, on the chest, or some of you know my daughter Rebecca because she was here in this community for a season. When the prophetic spirit comes on her, she wigs out. And it's getting more and more these days. She's sort of like, <laughs> well, it doesn't look pretty. <laughs> it's embarrassing to her, but it is the hand of the Lord coming upon her. And when we talk about the thing that we see in the Bible, the spirit of prophecy coming on someone, when that happens, the spirit of prophecy can exhibit in that way. How do we know? Because when three times Saul sent soldiers to capture David, three times the spirit of God came upon them in power and they were wiped out on the ground, unable to move forward to capture him. Now let that sink in for a minute because can I say something else, Australia? I love you. 94 trips. Pine Rivers is my second home. But you know, sometimes we've gotten a little too sanitary with our ministry and the spiritual gifts. We don't want things to be messy. We don't want them to be, well, indecent and out of order. But what if God is orchestrating it that it actually looks like that? Would you be willing to let go and be made a fool of in order that the voice of God would be heard, either by you or others? Would you be willing not just to be a middle-class church with all of the sensibilities that go with that and allow God to do it? Now, I'm not talking about acting weird just to act weird. But when it's really God, most people are happy to put up with weird in order to have God's voice truly come through. Does that make sense? So let's not get too sanitary because I'll just speak as an American vineyard guy. A lot of our churches in America are way too sanitary, like three quarters of them or more. No longer really move in the things of God because of this desire to be sanitary all the time. And in most of those quarters, if I dare say it, I think those people without realizing it are actually hostile to the things of God. They wouldn't say they are, but their actions say otherwise. Does that make sense? So don't make that mistake that we've made. We're trying to fix it in America, but it's a bigger task than it seems. Okay, so spontaneity and flow. The hand of the Lord comes on Elisha, and now the word comes. And as that word comes, the flow begins to build. And this is really critical. Sometimes people are content with one single word, but much of the time, as you get that word... If you're prophesying, if you give it, more will come. You speak what you have and more comes. Other times you may be waiting on something, so I'm jumping ahead slightly, but you want to capture what you got and then more will come. You aren't releasing the word yet. You're simply capturing what you did have. What's the best way to do that? Write it down. And... I'm not a big believer in automatic writing. That's an occultic practice. But I can tell you, I have had numerous times in my life, in the old days it was literally by writing, 
where I would, I would get in a stream and I would, you know, I'd be writing stuff and it was just coming to me. And I would think, this is really good. And, and I'm not that good. As good as this is, I know this isn't me being that good. And then I would send those letters off. I used to, when I was younger, I used to send a lot of letters to friends, literal paper letters, because we didn't all have computers in those days. I'm that old. And, and I would get a week or two later, I'd get a letter back from that friend and they'd say, that letter was amazing. It spoke right into where I was right at that time in my life. It was exactly what I needed to hear. And it even had the very insights I needed. And you even had details in there that you couldn't have known. How could that be? Because I was under the anointing and the flow was coming. That's how. But I didn't even know what I was experiencing. Now I have language for it. And that can also happen when you're typing. So, you know, you're and then send, off it goes, whether it's a text or a, you know, if you're using an Apple computer or an email, same sort of thing will happen. And so that flow, let it build, and it'll get bigger and bigger. Because if you're faithful in little, you will be given more or much. Now, this is not something where we force our thoughts in a direction by choice of will or concentration. This is not something where we force our thoughts. If you do, you will be you will be prophesying out of your soul. This might be the single most important concept I'm going to say tonight, so pay really close attention to this. And I get this from the writings of St. Ignatius Loyola, Ignatian spirituality. You want to maintain spiritual neutrality. Now, St. Ignatius did not use that term. I've coined it to capture his thought. St. Ignatius was the founder of the Jesuit order, and he was a deeply spiritual man. He'd been a soldier, and the Lord confronted him one day. He heard the voice of God. He saw a beggar by the side of the road, and he took off his armor, and he got off his horse. He sold all that. He was a wealthy man from a rich family. Most soldiers in those days that were of that uh, level of equipping you know, soldiers or uh, horses and armament and so forth. They probably were high-born. He sold what he had, and he, he founded the Ignatian order, and ultimately that order got corrupted and became the leaders of the Inquisition. But that wasn't where it began. Ignatius heard the voice of God, but one of the things he talks about in his writings is he says, you have to get to the place of where you are indifferent between outcomes. This is the key idea behind spiritual neutrality. I like to say, put a ball bearing on the edge of a razor blade, and it doesn't fall off. If it goes one way or the other, you aren't neutral. But if it's perfectly balanced, the ball bearing won't fall off. You go, that's really hard. Point taken. But you can do it. How do you get there? What Jesus did in the garden. Father, I, my preference would be that I not go to the cross. This is going to hurt a lot. I don't want to be separated from you. And I know if I ask, you will give me more than 12 legions of angels, and I can get out of this. But not my will, but thine be done. And the Father says, Son, I want you to go to the cross. Okay, Father, I'll do what you want. That's spiritual neutrality. You may know full well what you want, but you lay it down and you say, Not my will, yours. You say, Well, how, long do, how many times do I have to say that? Until you are well and truly spiritually neutral. How do you know when you're spiritually neutral? Because you can say with a clean heart, with no or, or catch or something, that. 
without that going on in your mind, your spirit, your soul, somewhere here in your emotions, those are your three key areas that you need to be concerned about. Your spirit man, your mind, and your, and your emotions. Without one of those going, I'd rather do this, and you start to bend that way. As soon as you start doing that thing, you are no longer spiritually neutral, and the revelation will be corrupted. Super important concept. This is where we maintain spiritual neutrality as the spontaneous flow is coming. Now remember, if your will is not submitted, a will, your will is part of your soul. I didn't stress it a moment ago. But if your will is not submitted, then your soul is predominating and your prophecy will be soulish and will therefore go off. Your mind is also part of the soul. And so if old memories come up, that cause fear or anxiety or other kinds of responses, that will drive you in the wrong direction. And if you have current fixations or restlessness, maybe anxiety, that will pull you off of spiritual neutrality. This is why I said, start out by quieting your soul before the Lord. And emotions are part of the soul. So I've talked about will, mind, and emotions. Your emotions are part of the soul. And if you have highly happy and anticipatory emotions. Oh, this is going to be great. You know, if this all happens, you know, I don't know, the church down at Lawton is going to have insulation in the roof and we're going to have heaters on the walls and it's all going to be, the, the glory will fall and there'll be 500 people coming to church every Sunday. It'll be great. That's not out of my soul, I hope. <laughs> may it be, may it be, may it be. But you see how that works? You could be prophesying out of the soul with good anticipation, or it might be negative anticipation. And with that, you'll be pulled off in neutrality. Now, people who are really skilled prophets and pretty good at what they do, they're pretty good at finding neutrality. By the way, just this is, this is bonus. This is one of the reasons why it is so difficult to give an accurate word to someone you know well. Because you love them, presumably, or you hate them. <laughs> but whichever one it is, it's hard to be neutral. So, you know, Kate's been working with me for four years, and I don't know, it was about a year and a half ago. She was like, how come you've never given me a word? I want a word. I watch you give words to people all the time. I want a word. I want my word. And I was like, I can't give you a word, Kate. I'm not neutral toward you. She's like, what are you talking about? Give me a word. So anyway, I went to the Lord and I said, Lord, I need to get neutral with Kate. And I need to get a word because she really wants a word. And she, what's she doing? She's pulling on me in faith. And one night I was at home. She was here in Australia. And the, the, the word of the Lord came to me. The voice of God spoke to me. And I jotted it all down. I'm like, okay, I've got this word. Now when do I release it? So I sent Kate a message that night because my night is her day. So I sent her a message and I said, hey, I've got a word from God for you. She goes, good, when do I get it? I said, well, I don't know. What are you talking about? She's, you know, pulling her hair out. But I finally, finally I felt, okay, this is the time. This is the now. Poof, I give her this word. It rocked you and it came to pass. And she really liked the word. But see how that works? It's really hard to prophesy to people that you know. That's why it's easier to call someone out of a crowd that I don't know than to give a word to someone I do know. Does that make sense?
All right. Last step, step four. So we've talked about getting quiet. We've talked about um, vision and focus, fixing our gaze on the Lord. We've talked about letting spontaneity begin and flow. And we've talked about how to continue that flow, not just letting it be a single word, but a stream. And step four, journaling. Now, this is also why I said it's really valuable not to be using a tablet or a phone for this. You can transfer it there later if you like. I get a lot of words that I store in Dropbox. I just type them up and in they go. But however you do it, you want to, I, I strongly suggest that you do it with a pen and paper. What I like to do, I get these little notebooks and they fit in my backpack. And I'll, you know, until the one's filled up, that's where I'll often write things down. So where do we see this principle? Well, we see it in several places. Let's go to Habakkuk. I've mentioned him a couple of times. Nobody knows where he is, but he's in the back of the Old Testament. He follows Nahum, if that helps you. Okay, so Habakkuk. Habakkuk goes to the Lord. He has a complaint. And he says, you know, life sucks. The city is corrupt. Everybody's doing bad stuff. What are you going to do about it? And the Lord says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do about it. Let me show you. And Habakkuk gets a revelation. And he gets a revelation that the Babylonians are coming to destroy the city. He goes, wait, wait, hold on. How can that be right? Those guys are worse than we are. And the Lord answers that question. So in the midst of all that, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower. Now, Habakkuk might have been one of the guards of the walls of Jerusalem. We don't know, but it's conceivable given that language. So he may have heard, he may have heard from God while he's pulling night watch because he can get quiet. He can focus on the Lord. And as long as there's no attack going on, what are you going to do? You just stand around and listen to the cows mooing out just outside the city walls, right? So he's doing that. And I will look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer uh, concerning my complaint. So how is God going to bring the answer to me? By the way, note that he says what I will answer concerning my complaint. Why does he say that? Because most of the time when revelation flows to you, it will sound as though it is your voice. It could seem external sometimes, but most commonly, most prophets will tell you, it comes as though it is their own internal voice. As long as the voice is cleaned up, you don't have all that brokenness and shatteredness that clouds the revelation. So he says, what I will answer, meaning this is going to rise out of my own spirit, and then it, it give, it's given birth to. And verse 2, and the Lord answered me. And how did the Lord answer him? He said, write the vision. Write the vision. What I showed you, write it down and make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. In other words, use big letters so if someone's reading it while they're running... You know, you're bouncing up and down. If it's little tiny letters, you won't be able to follow it. So for whatever reason, God wants this written in extra large script. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. Habakkuk, I'm showing you the future. The word I'm giving you isn't to be released yet. It's awaiting the appointed time of release. And it hastens to the end, though. It's coming rapidly. So even though it's in the future, trust me, Habakkuk, I'm on the case. And it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. 
This is what I'm telling you. Boom, he gives him the revelation. So write it down. We see this same thing going on in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet. Jeremiah says this, um, chapter 22. Verse 24, as I live, declares the Lord through Kaniah, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those who are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Well, that doesn't sound like a very good word. So what's going on here? Kaniah is another name for Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim. And at the very, very, very end of, Jer of Jerusalem, before it was destroyed, Jehoiakim was the king, and his son Jehoiachin is put on the throne, and if you read the, the books of Kings and Chronicles, it says he reigned three months, and then poof, he was out. And a nephew named Zedekiah is put in, and Zedekiah is the ruling king at the time the city is destroyed. But what the Lord is saying to Kaniah because of his wickedness is, you're out of here, dude, in modern colloquial English. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. You'll be in exile. But to the land to which they long to return, there shall be no return. And then he says, is this man, Kaniah, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land they do not know? O oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. So this Jehoiachin dialed childless. But what did the Lord say? This word of judgment against this king because of his wickedness, write it down. This is Jeremiah the prophet. So Habakkuk was told to write it down. Jeremiah gets told to write it down. It's a hard word, and it's not the kind of thing that, you know, nowadays most people are saying, God doesn't give words like that. Every now and then he actually does. I remember when the Lord sent me to warn a friend of mine about something he was involved in, and I said, the Lord wants me to tell you, I, I saw you in a dream, and your wife was standing over you weeping. I said, I assume this is a word about your impending death if you don't turn from what you're doing. He blew it off, and his wife was weeping. It does happen once in a while. Just about done. Jeremiah 30, verse 1, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. So we see again that writing thing. It also occurs in Jeremiah 36, 2 and 4. Now he's using a scribe named Baruch. Okay, why do we journal? Number one, it slows us down. We're often moving too quickly. And when we slow down, it, allow, it requires us, it allows us, but it requires us to think about what we are encountering from God. This is very important for this reason. If we are thinking about all that we are encountering, it allows further revelation to come to us. And therefore, we become deeper in our revelatory ability and our ability to hear from God. It also creates a record for future reference. And I'm going to tell a story with this that I think is really cool. A couple of years ago, I was out in a part of Australia that um, it's a long way from here, I'll just say that. 
And um, I was sitting in the, in the dining room of this couple in whose home I was staying, and I, I've known this couple for a while. And um, the woman kind of uncharacteristically says to me, you know, I, this morning I felt drawn to go get out my journal. And I've, I've had this uh, journal for several years. And she said, I opened it up and I was looking for something that I had written down. And I had this dream on August the 22nd, 2011. But this is 2016. So we're five years later. And she says, and in the dream, um, I saw a dead baby, probably baby girl, probably age four, maybe up to six. So you might say child, not baby, but she said baby, so I just kept the language. And she said, um, this baby was anointed by a priestess and raised from death to life. What do you suppose that means? And I said, I often interpret dreams. I said, oh, this is an easy one. I said, that baby was a work of God that died in 2011. And I said, the Lord intends to raise it to life because here we are five years later. I said, you've been waiting and mourning over the dead baby. And she knew exactly what it was. She knew what the work of God was. She knew the whole thing. And I said, and you are the priestess. You are to raise this baby to life and steward this work of God. And that, that work was born that night. The Spirit of God fell on that woman and she and her husband stepped into it. This is what journaling will do for you. The other day I was um, on an airplane and I pulled out one of my journals. It was an electronic now version because I'd transcribed what I'd written in longhand. And I'm paging through it and all of a sudden the Lord says, stop. So I stop. He goes, look at that entry. And I had an entry there from 2014 while John Paul Jackson was still alive. And, it, and in it I was trying to go to Scotland and I was trying to find the open door coming up from London. And I was looking in uh, Glasgow and I was looking in Edinburgh. And nothing was happening, and in the, in the uh, dream that I'd had, um, the, the word of the Lord came to me, and he said, that which you seek is found in Inverness. The door will open in Inverness. So the plane lands, and I fire off a, a message to someone I know in Scotland, and I said, and they'd invited me next year to come in, in 2019 to speak at this event they're going to do. And I said, just by chance, can you tell me where you live? And she writes back and says, I'm from Inverness. Now, the Lord spoke to me in 2014, but this event is in 2019. I waited five years on that word. And, I, and so I wrote back and I said, well, that's funny because I had this dream of God opening a door for Scotland through Inverness. She says, what's the word? So I send her the word. She goes, this is crazy because I had this word about someone coming to Inverness in 2019. And I wondered if it was you. What happened? Two pieces of the revelation lockstep come together. See why it's important to write things down? Get quiet. Focus your eyes on Jesus. Let the revelation flow. Record what you get. It sounds simple, but you'd be surprised how easily we get knocked off course. Now, there are some other aspects of hearing God's voice that I'm not going to talk about because we're over time. Maybe, maybe I'll do them 
uh, tomorrow night in the night service before we knock off to watch State of Origin. But for now, I'm going to knock off. Any questions on what I've shared? Back, yeah. No, do use it. Do use it for sanctified, focusing on Jesus. But as the Lord draws you, be sure you don't let your imagination push what he's showing you. This is when the soul overrides the spirit. You know, there was a famous Chinese evangelist who suffered greatly at the hands of the communists, years of torture, named Watchman Nee. He was kind of religious in some ways, but he wrote a book. You don't even really need to read the book to get the gist of what he was writing about. The book was called The Latent Power of the Soul. And in it, he talks about how the soul can, can override the spirit man. And for a lot of people, they don't even recognize there's a difference between soul and spirit. They, they've maybe been taught in their evangelical background they're the same. They are not. So you use your sanctified imagination to focus and draw if you can't, if you can't open your eyes and literally see in the spirit. But then as you've done that and you're locked into Jesus, then he can take your thoughts where he wants to take them. And as he does that, don't try to guide that. Let him do what he does. Does that make sense? Does that answer the question? Okay, cool. Yeah, right there. Trial and error. Honestly, this is part of why in the Old Testament they had schools of the prophets. And shameless plug here, it's also one of the reasons why... No, I'm not going to say you should buy everything on my table. It's also one of the reasons why small groups are so critical in the life of the local church. Because in small groups, we can learn these gifts in a safe environment. Maybe it's eight or ten people, we're all friends. If we get it wrong, we all laugh and eat brownies and you know, drink some tea and then it's done. But you can try and try and try again until you start getting it right. Everything that I am doing with ministry now, you know where I learned to do it? In my small group at the Anaheim Vineyard way back in the day. Yeah, the gifts have grown with use and with time and so forth, but that's where it really all got started. And in a lot of churches nowadays, People aren't going to small groups. Either they don't offer a small group ministry or some churches say, well, we don't need that. You know, we just want to have you walk into the glory and get the download and then you're good. And it's like, well, yeah, but when do you get to like evaluate this and figure out if it's worth anything? And also in small groups is where you work that stuff out so that you, you learn to, you know, eat the chicken and throw out the bones. And after a while, you get pretty good at it. And you're like, okay, and people go, that's all right. And they go, but you really sucked six months ago. Yeah, but I've been trying for 24 weeks. And I practice, practice, practice. One of the things I love about Sean Bowles, you guys all know who Sean Bowles is? If you don't, you should. He's probably one of the preeminent prophets in the world right now. And he doesn't miss much. Um, Sean Bowles. If you listen to him or you read his stuff, he says, again, did you hear me say he's one of the most preeminent prophets in the world? And he gets astounding words of knowledge and stuff, calling people out of crowds. But he says, 
for years, more than 20 years, I practiced all the time. The prophetic games with God I was talking about, he used to do them every day. He was in small groups and he practiced. He'd go to church on Sunday, he'd walk up to people and give them words. He would come to the altar and pray for people and he'd try to give them words. And by his own admission, a lot of them were bogus words. They didn't work out. So he had to say, I'm sorry, I missed it, I was wrong. It's okay to say that. Actually, that lends more credibility to your ministry than being right. And over time, it got better and better and better. And if you're faithful and little, you'll be given more. Today, Sean Bowles is one of the most preeminent prophets in the world. And he gets called before prime ministers and kings and people like this on a routine basis because of what he says is so darn accurate. So get in a small group. If you don't have a small group ministry in your church, agitate until it is started and then get in a small group and practice it. And over time, you'll find you will actually learn to do this better. Make sense? Yeah. I'd bring her to the group and I'd let the Spirit of God start working on her. It won't be long before something comes up that pokes that. Might even be the first time. But it won't be long because the Lord's on the case. He knows the issues, He knows them better than we do. And you might feel prompted at a point to say something, and when you do, then say it. But it may well be that one of the other ladies will say something and then your relationship won't be in play because it was someone else who did it. And then if she says, well, you know, that person said to me that, you know, I'm doing yoga and I shouldn't be. And What do you think of that? You can say, well, you know, what do you think of it? I mean, how did that hit you when you said, well, it made me really angry. Why did it make you angry? What are you defending in that? Could it be that God was speaking to you? Well, do you think yoga's wrong? Well, I think it has problems. Yeah, it gives you a very gentle entry and you can be the one who guides her through that. Yep. Okay, you ready to try this? Okay. Yo, yeah. Oh, the word about Jeremy. Okay. Really? You know what's crazy about that? When I got this word, I saw a J behind a J behind a J. And I thought, oh, I don't know what that means, so I blew it off. <laughs> Every member of the family has a J in their name. Wow. We know in part, we prophesy in part. Okay. So here's the word for this Jeremy. Um, you've been concerned about your job and you've been concerned about money. And specifically with respect to the job, it may seem like there is a layoff coming or a firing that is unjust. And the Lord says not to worry about the job and the money situation because I am bringing a new beginning and you are going to experience a reset. And the reset, I wish I could say there's more money. I don't know if there is, so just to be clear. But the reset will be more satisfying and fulfilling than what you have been doing up until now. 
Which is what? Ah, so he's been on 12-hour night shifts and they've been two ships in the night and so the marriage is suffering because of it. Well, how about that? What's happening? Oh, really? Okay. So we're going to pray for you anyway, even though you're not Jeremy. <laughs> okay, so that means I'm four for four on these words I can put out there. How's that? <laughs> God vindicated me at the end of the night. <laughs> <sighs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> okay, you ready to do an activation now? All right. How many people have a literal pen? A literal pen, writing instrument, in your hand or on your person? Okay, most.